Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson, and we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is a trade union general secretary who's led her members out on strike for the first time in her union's 109-year history. Pat Cullen has been on picket lines all over the country with the nurses, sharing Bob Marley's Get Up, Stand Up on her Twitter feed and leading the negotiations with the government on behalf of the Royal College of Nursing. She's not a natural militant and only joined the RCM because of its no-strike policy, but she has a toughness shaped by growing up during the troubles in Northern Ireland and losing both her parents young. I'm definitely tenacious, she says. When I believe in something, I'll follow it through to the bitter end. I absolutely will. Pat Cullen, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. What does that mean, follow it through to the bitter end, for the nurses? And do you worry that the NHS is already at breaking point? This is going to be so tough. I do. I think the NHS is, I think, even beyond breaking point. At this point in time, if you were to speak to the 320,000 brilliant nursing staff that um, took part in uh, this ballot for industrial action, I don't think you would find any of them saying that it is extremely difficult to try and look after our patients at this point in time. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. The health service is is fragile and it is broken. And I've described it as being in a crisis um, and about to go over the precipice, but it has gone over the precipice at this stage. Okay. And do you worry, though, that the strikes are just going to make it worse? Because the RCN always did have this no-strike policy because it was so important to protect patients. Mm-hmm. Um. Look, I've thought long, long and hard about about this. Um, I, I'm, I'm still a nurse. Um, been a nurse for 42 years. Uh, I'm giving away my age now. So this isn't something that I've just decided to do very lightly as, as the leader of, of the Royal College. It had got to the point where the voice of those nurses on the front line that you hear about now and hear them speak on, on, on the media every single day now are saying they can't go on any longer. Their voice just became, it, they became invisible is how they would describe themselves to me and their voice unheard. Um, and a, they, the, the nurses that are left behind in the health service at this point in time were seeing their colleagues leaving in hundreds. Um, and they felt that they were left with no option but to do something else and mm. um, to try and, and, and look after the health service, which is inevitably about looking after our patients. 
Um, so that's the reason we got to where we are. Now, I didn't decide to do a ballot for strike action on my own. Um, I have got a ruling council that I'm, I'm accountable to. And all of those people are practising nurses. Um, and as well as looking to, to the advice that I would get from, from, from the council, I made um, a decision, and I suppose it's, it's how I know to do the job, the best um, of getting out amongst the members. It's where I feel I get my energy. So I spent um, many weeks before we embarked on the ballot for strike action um, going around practically every hospital in England. Um, I al already knew what the system was like in Northern Ireland, but I wanted to know from, from those people at the front line what it felt like from them. And each and every one of them said with a really heavy heart, um, we believe that we were left with no option now but to vote for industrial action. Um, I remember coming home at night after spending hours and hours with, with those members and feeling an absolute dread um, that it was an inevitability then um, and feeling how can any government turn their back on those people and wishing that they would in many respects go in and do what I had just done and walk those wards and just speak to them as human beings, nothing else, but just look them and look at the whites of their eyes and say, what's it like for you every day? Um, and I I was left um, every single solitary day that I did that, I was left um, coming home and thinking about those nurses that cried to me or just said to me, um, we know that the government won't listen to you. We know that we won't get anything out of this. But actually just someone standing up for us mm. um, will make will make a difference. We just need a break at this point in time. And that just drove me on to say, I can't be just another person that stands idly by and ignores the, the voice of nursing. Because I keep saying, if you ignore the voice of nursing, you ignore the voice of the patient. and They deserve better. And how did you feel when you joined the picket lines? Because that must have been a really momentous moment for you because you hadn't wanted to be part of a union because of the picket line so what was it like? You know right up until the morning that um, I, I remember getting up at four o'clock on the first morning of the of, of the strike um, and getting ready and um, still thinking to myself this will not happen because I don't want it to happen um, and feeling it was really a tragic, really uh, an absolute tragic moment. Um, I absolutely felt a real dread. Um, and I thought, as a nurse, um, of the patients that um, could possibly have been affected that day as a, as a result of what I was leading um, and those those nurses were, were, were taking part in. But then the reality kicks in, doesn't it? For, it certainly did for me that... Um, Every one of those patients that um, I really apologise to that may have had a procedure or outpatient appointment cancelled on a day of industrial action, they've had it cancelled numerous times before. Um, and that, that kept me focused on this is the right thing to do because we have to we have to try something to get this government to realise they cannot keep turning their back on the NHS. Um, and you actually and met some patients on the picket line, didn't you? I did. Um, met fantastic patients um, all over um, the, 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 the countries that I visited. 
Um, was there one that sticks? There was in your one. Mind? Yes, there was one. There was one gentleman, and it was in in in. Um, I, I, because I travelled so much that day, I can't remember whether it was Bristol or or Wales, but I think it was in 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 Wales when I had moved to to Cardiff. Um, and this this young man approached me, and he had a baby with him, and. Um, I just assumed that he was one of our members. So um, he said, I just wanted to speak with you and to thank you for what you're doing. Um, and it was a freezing, freezing cold day. And he had this lovely wee baby um, um, attached to him. And of course, I, I immediately wanted to see the, this new baby. And he talked to me about that his baby had been brought into a paediatric a &E and um, that a... The nurse that that um, assessed him immediately immediately um, realised that the baby was um, um, septic and it was um, it needed to be rushed through and dealt with, um, and he said that some other um, um, some other healthcare professionals just weren't as sure, but this nurse kept insisting, absolutely insisting, that this child was very very ill. And he said to me, if it hadn't have been for that nurse and she's here today, I would never have my child um, with me now. And I felt that was just, you know, the power of nursing. And there's something more than about we are a graduate profession. We are highly skilled, highly educated. But there's something about um, us in terms of what we see in front of us and that there's nothing that you should be undervalued in that. Um, and that, that that gentleman came out that day and stood alongside that nurse on the picket line to show his support. We want to take you back to your own childhood to find out what really drives you. And you grew up in County Tyrone in Northern Ireland and you're the youngest of seven children, of which there are six girls and one boy. And can you remember your earliest memory with your siblings? Well, I'm the I'm the youngest of seven and there's a big age gap, as you can imagine. My earliest memories is almost that we were a family of two, myself and my sister Petra, who there's only a, just a year and a few months difference in both of us, because by the time I was growing up, most of my older siblings had gone off to, to work. But I remember them all coming home and always being very mollycoddled because I was the baby, of course, in the family. Um, a very, very strong bond between all of us as well we had a sister with a learning disability she was a very she was she was a very very challenging sister in the house but I was always in admiration of how my mother cared for her and brought the best out on her and almost um left certainly us as a young family with the impression that there was absolutely nothing wrong with my sister Anna because she pushed her to to um achieve Everything that that we were were trying to achieve in life, suppose, did we come from? I came from very humble beginnings. Um, my father died when I was thirteen. Um, mother died when I was was eighteen. Um, and of course, I grew up in a very strong Republican um, part of 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 Northern Ireland. Um, and I, it was at the height of the conflict, if if you, if you can remember, um, mm -hmm. back to those those days. So it was quite a dangerous time to have, um, I suppose, six girls and, and one mm. boy um, um, and living out in, the, in, in a country area where um, every day was probably a struggle um, for, for my, 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 certainly my mother. 
But she was a very fastidious, determined, um, wonderful woman. Um, and I would describe her as we came from very humble beginnings. But she was the type of woman could make a f- five pounds last two weeks and make us feel as if we had the world at our feet. Was it a very rural idyll? Was it very beautiful on the farm? What was the kind of set the scene of what the farm was like? Um, it looking back on it probably was was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were young and didn't have very much, um, it didn't seem as beautiful at, at the time. Of mm-hmm. course, now when I look back, we 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 were poor, but we were incredibly rich. Um, and I say that because. Um, Whatever it was about my mother, and she she had no formal education, uh, she made us feel incredibly rich, um, even though we had very very little money. Uh, so she worked. She when of course my father died when when I was thirteen, as I say, um, it left mummy with with um, uh, um, us all to look after, and she worked what was a very small farm. She worked night and day. Mm-hmm. I remember her. I remember being out in um, sows would have been pigging at home and sitting up all night with them um, and um, to make sure that none of the, the, the pigs died and taking turns and I would have been what age, maybe nine or ten at the time. Mm, quite you know. exciting then. But it way. was, it was. well looking back and it was mm. exciting, it wasn't exciting at the time when it was four o'clock in the morning <laughs> yeah. and you were waiting on the fourth or fifth pig to arrive and you were thinking I just want to go to bed yeah. and then mummy bringing in um, what you would have called the cappy pig, the small pig mm. that was about to die, and putting it in front of the fire and us feeding it with with milk during the 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 night time and having to take shifts to do that. Mm. Um, but all of that was because that was our way of surviving. Mummy mm. um, needed to keep those pigs alive. She needed to make sure that um, and the farm kept going as much as possible. It was a very very small farm, but she needed to make. And I I still remember I've I've visions of her. Um, carrying bales of hay on, on her back um, right. and then coming in um, from maybe five or six o'clock in the morning and then coming in and getting us ready for school yeah. um, at seven o'clock. And I never, ever, in all my memory of my mother, I've never heard her complain, never mm. heard her complain once about hard work. And maybe that's where my mm. ethic of work comes from mm. because um, she worked that farm all on her own, all on her own. And then came in and um, I never recall a day coming from school that she wasn't at home for us either, uh, which is really interesting, you Mm. know. Um, So there was that real bond with her and I missed her deeply when when my mother passed away. And did you help around the farm a lot then? You had no choice but Mm. to help around the farm. So we came in, we we came from school. what was a typical day like for us? We went to school, um, came home at half past four because where where I went to school was quite a bit from home. So we had to take a bus for about 40 minutes to, to get, get home. And when we came home then, that would be the first thing, change out of your uniform, get into work clothes and, and start to help help around the farm. But before that, mummy always had a dinner on the table. Um, and... Um, she was always at the window waiting on my sister and me to arrive home. Right. And that was really comforting when I look back at that. That was really important. And then the three of us would have started in then to um, get things ready around around the farm for 
for the evening and for the next day. And how aware were you when you were growing up of the troubles and the violence? Did you feel afraid at all? And do you think that made you more of a conciliator now or, or less of one? Um, was I aware of it? Yes, of course you were aware of it because, as I said, I, I come from Carrickmore um, and it is 100% a Republican mm-hmm. area. I remember my mother and indeed my father before he died always being very, very concerned about us as as girls, making sure we never got involved in anything. Um, and that and maybe that was why my mother was so keen and even though I did rebel um, <laughs> on us being um, educated. And she would have always talked in her own very simple terms, but very meaningful terms about you need to get government jobs, girls. And to, she was always very keen. She was probably a feminist when I look back. She would have always said never depend on a man for your money. Right. Um, but she was very, very keen we didn't get involved in anything. The troubles, of course, or the conflict uh, as, as it is, um, would have had a significant impact on our lives. It would not have been unusual for us to have our houses raided at night. Um, and I remember being very young and my father had a rule actually that, um, which was interesting, that we had to um, make sure that we had clothes left at the bottom of our bed um, so that when the army came to to raid the houses, it was then, um, he had a rule that they would not come up the stairs into the girls' bedrooms until the girls got changed out of their pyjamas into into their normal clothes. And that just became the norm for us. Um, you'd have known that the door, the door was knocked. And, um, so how often would that happen? Mm, it could have happened. It would have been... It, there was times it could have happened twice a week. Um, there was times maybe then when there would have been changes of, of, of um, um, military arriving in. Some were a bit more um, vociferous than others, uh, mm. um, and when a new when a new um, uh, group arrived, the, the 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 raids on houses would have increased. Um, once they got to know you and got to know the family, then they 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 they, they decreased. Um, so every six months there would have been a changeover of military. Um, so every six months you knew that there was going to be then more raids on, on houses around. And I remember then as well, you would have gone out you know, maybe to check on cows or whatever at night. And um, those young um, um, soldiers would have been lying in, in the outhouses around. And even at an early age, I remember looking at them. Now they were always, when we were girls and there was never any issue Um You'd have been scared because you'd have had a flash lamp with you, and you'd have gone in, and the next thing, um, some young gentleman would have jumped up um, from from behind the buyer. Um, it's funny how you become conditioned to it, mm. but you could just got used to it after a while. But the one thing that you must not have, could not have done, was engage with them, um, yeah. and you weren't you weren't able to speak to them. When were you most them. afraid? When was I most mm. afraid? Probably. At the time of the hunger strikes in, in, in Northern Ireland, things became very, very tense. We would have said there was more aggressive engagement with, with local people at that time. Uh, and that, that was quite a terrifying time. And there was there was obviously more presence of, of the army around the streets and, and certainly in and around the country. Um, and we didn't have a car, so Petra and I had to walk everywhere. 
and it was in a really, really rural area. And you can imagine being 13 or 14 and you'd been walking along a very, a very dark, dark country road. And the next thing, um, uh, the army would have jumped out of ditches um, and, and, and searched you and doing the usual thing. That was terrifying. That mm. was terrifying. Terrifying. Imagine doing that. It just became part of the norm, yeah. really, you know. Um, it's impossible for it not to affect your character, actually, and make you quite angry, I would have thought. But, but you know, there's, that's, that's, that's an emotion I never felt. Mm. I just wonder why. Mm. And I think that's because of my parents. Yeah. Um, and my parents were never angry mm. with the the army coming and searching our houses. And it wasn't just a matter of searching your your house. It would have been, you know, your mattress would have been slit open. Um, your floorboards were taken up. Um <laughs> Uh, your sometimes the doors were taken off your the the, the rooms um, because they wanted to look inside them. It's funny, you know. After that episode, the concentration on the house would have been putting things back together. And um, I suppose as a young girl, we were just thinking, "Thank God that's over now. We get back into our beds." Yeah. Um, and sometimes you'd have had raids twice a night. So you'd have folded up your clothes and left them at the bottom of the bed and then gone back again. And, and you thought, oh, no, not again. And feeling really tired. It's funny how it's maybe coping mechanisms are probably more than yeah. anything. Amazing. But, um, and the number of times that the commanding officer would have apologised was fascinating as well and said, we're really, really sorry um, for doing this. Um but I never remember my father being aggressive with them or being annoyed at it happening. It was almost as as that was part of of what happened and you know was part of the conflict. And do you think it had a lasting impact on your character at all? That that sense of always being on the lookout. Well, did it make you more of a conciliator? Do you think? Um, I look back at that time now and think to myself. Um, no one, no one gained out of that. Um, that was the first thing, mm. and that uh, look what happens when people sit down and talk to to each other, yeah. and and um, get into a room, and try and work things through. There was nothing to be gained from the conflict in Northern Ireland, only sorrow and suffering on on every side. Mm. Um, because I remember looking at those young um, uh, um, army personnel coming in. Some of them were not much older than me mm. and thinking, of course, I had never traveled anywhere at that stage. So I had no concept of how far away they were from home. I remember thinking, gosh, that must be the saddest thing in the world for those people to be away. And I knew they didn't they didn't want to be there mm. um, and probably had no real concept of why they were there. It was a job mostly to them. That's what I felt anyway. Um but look what can be achieved when you sit down and talk and there has to be give and take on both sides. Um, that was the happiest time for, for me then um, as a young, I was a young married woman when we had um, and just had our first child when, when, when peace broke out in Northern Ireland. But I remember being absolutely ecstatic that my children would not have to go through what, what we mm. went through. What was it like growing up with so many siblings? Were you always fighting for attention or were you competitive? Were you very kind to each other and sort of looked after each other through the troubles? Um, were we competitive? Uh, You're so many nurses in your family, aren't you? Yes, yes. Um, all but one of my sisters, obviously my sister with a learning disability, um, are nurses. 
Uh, and my eldest sister, who was a major influence in, in my life, who's now um, in her late 70s. Um, and I went to live with her after my, my mother passed away. Um, he, she probably was like a second mother to me. Um, I would have always said I probably had four mothers uh, because even my sister with a learning disability had a very nurturing um, way with her. So I probably was molly cuddled um, and um, spoilt. I wouldn't say I was spoilt, but I had a very happy, happy childhood uh, because of, of my sisters and being in awe of them, being nurses as well. And obviously that's what drove me to to want to become a nurse. And what was your father like as a father? So he obviously was a farmer before his death. What what was he like as a father? I have very little um, recollection of my father for a, a number of reasons. He was much older than my mother, um, 20 plus years older than her. Um, and he was a very authoritarian man. Uh, so um, <laughs> it, it used to, um, he was, he was clearly a high achiever um but again because of the 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 time that he lived um in he he didn't have a formal education but very very well read and very very um I suppose self-educated and he he strived to um ensure that we achieved our best and of course he didn't do that with me because I I rebelled yeah. um but I remember him rolling up a newspaper. I remember this. And he, when, of course, I was the baby. Um, and he used to um, tap me across the head. And he used to say, and I used to say, well, why did you do that? And he used to say, because if you're not going to bother, you're coming out of it. Um, <laughs> and there was almost this sense that I was the rebellious one amongst amongst the family. Now, it was maybe, I wouldn't say it was rebellious on a very wide scale, but um, there was always that feeling that I pushed the boat out a little bit more. And then when you were 13 and he died, that must have been devastating for the whole family. But can you remember how you felt? Um, that was my first, um, I suppose, um, a sense of, of what death was like within a family. And um, I remember being devastated, absolutely devastated uh, that he had passed away. But I was more devastated for my mother because... Um, she, they had a really, really, really close um, relationship, and and in many ways he was even the authoritarian figure with with my mother, you know. But she she relied a lot on him um, to be the head of the family, and that's what what Irish families are probably like. Um, uh, I can't remember being too sad. Um, isn't it interesting? In the same way as I was devastated about my mother dying I can't and it's probably because I was I was much younger um but also because I still had my mother mm. who was really the stalwart in the family and how did your father die and then how did your mother die my father had been um ill right throughout from, from what I remember he had always been an ill man right um and he had chronic respiratory illness um <clears throat> So I, my early recollections of him has always been um, about being in hospital or um, my sister and I having to walk to the nearest town to get prescriptions um, for him. And maybe that was why I didn't feel that desperate connection to him. It was always about illness and sickness with him. Um, 
My mother was a completely different story in that um, she died very suddenly and uh, I was just, she died on the 8th of June, I turned 18 on the 2nd of June. So, um, and she wasn't ill? And she wasn't ill, no, no she wasn't and she just took a, a massive heart attack and and passed away and um, I, I felt totally bereft um, mm. because I hadn't had a chance to say goodbye to Were her. Were you there or, when she died? Or? Um, yes, I was. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's a really sore point for me as well because... Was your sister there with you too? Yes, my sister Petra. Um, and um, he, I suppose you look back and think, what could you have done to try and have prevented her from dying? But there was absolutely nothing. But at 18, you feel yeah. that, that, you know, perhaps maybe if we had have done something more... Um, but we knew that she was dead. So what happened? She she died in bed. Right. Um, and um, she uh, had been um, very well. I remember we were sitting up and chatting and talking um, prior to, to her, her dying. And, um, uh, and then... Just she took a massive heart attack and passed away. Oh my goodness! And it was just so quickly and yeah. so horrific. It was really, it was so catastrophic for us. Yeah. Um, as two young, Petra was just turned turned twenty, and um, a nurse as well, and and myself at eighteen. So that that's what happened. And that must have really helped, though, in some ways, being a nurse. That you you must understand when families are constantly going through that in hospitals. Or do you find you're reliving it again? No, um, it definitely makes you more aware of what loss is about mm. um, and the impact of, on, of, of someone passing away. And it really did hit home to me during the pandemic. Whilst we, we, we could not have prevented mm. our mother dying, she had a, a massive coronary, um, we at least were there. Um, but to think of all those families who just didn't even have that, we had something, um, they had they had nothing. Mm. But what but what nursing brought to them was um, the nurses made sure that they were with them, uh, and um, it's no different in England than it is in in Northern Ireland or any part of the UK. Um, uh, as a nurse, I think one of the most catastrophic things can be somebody dying alone, mm. um, and our nurses made sure that that no patient died alone during the pandemic um, and you hear the stories and I think that's why I'm in awe of, of the profession. Um, nurses going out and buying iPads out of their own money to be able to bring into intensive care units so that the person that was passing away could at least have some contact mm. with their family um, and the outside world um, because that's so important. And do you think... Um seeing your mother dying made you want to become a nurse even more because you wanted to help other people and and cure other people? Um, I knew before then I wanted to be a nurse, definitely mm. wanted to be a nurse. Uh, I think my mother had a, a big impact on that um, while she was alive because I talk about how she looked after my sister um, and I've seen how she did that and my sister's then coming home and... Um, 
and and in their nurses' uniforms and um, talking about how they um, the things that they they were able to do when on duty, and I was uh, fascinated with all of that as well. Um, so I, I definitely wanted to to be a nurse. Um, my mother passing away probably brought a lot more empathy into how I nursed people, and particularly in my area of mental health, um, yeah. where I believe um, um, that it takes a special type of person to be a mental health nurse. Uh, and it, it made me mo- really acutely aware of the importance of, of life and, and and preserving life um, for as long as possible. And of course, in mental health, you know that um, that can be very, very challenging at times for people to to continue on with their lives. But that became really, really important to me. You're listening to Past Imperfect in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the nurses leader, Pat Cullen. We'll be back after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, the head of the nursing union, Pat Cullen. What were you like at school? Because you didn't do particularly well in exams. You've said you were a rebel. Uh, it, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because now you're the opposite. You're so responsible and and being a nurse, you have to take major decisions. But at school, did you mess around a lot? I actually didn't mess around. So if if you look back, my sister Petra, who was a, is a major, still a major influence in my life, um, went to our local convent grammar school. So there was always an expectation that I would do the same. Um but that expectation, not just from my mother, but from Petra, because we were inseparable. She was my best friend and still is my best friend, as well as my sister. So, but that was the wrong school for me. It was absolutely the wrong school for me because anyone that has went to a, to a convent, and I'm, I'm not criticising 
nuns, but maybe I am. <laughs> they, 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 they are very hierarchical in, in how they, they approach life. There's very few of them around now. Um, and um, they are very conscious of status and position. And um, very, very quickly I realised that um, there, was, there was the middle class um, uh, um, well-heeled um, students as they seen it, and then there were the poorer working class um, students um, or pupils, um, and of course I fell into to that bracket. Um, and they definitely there was particular treatment um, given to whichever group that you belonged to, um, and the nuns were very good at doing it. Um, let me tell you. Uh, so um, there was almost like a segregation went on, and I think from from day one. That never sat easily with me. Mm-hmm. I knew that was wrong. Um, and it was a bit, it's a bit like maybe now how I lead the industrial action. I knew it was it was something I couldn't buy into mm-hmm. um, and couldn't just sit back and be a bystander. Even at, at 11, I was a young, I was a young birthday. So mm-hmm. I, I was young in my class. And one of the examples that I talked about um, was the, the, the school meals. Um, inevitably, we got free school meals. And um, the nuns um, made it very obvious that free school meals equaled being poor. Right. So there was two lines developed, those that could pay for their, for their lunch and then those that, that couldn't, which was us. Mm. Um, and, of course, those that, that could pay um, got first entry into the dinner hall um, and got um, <laughs> um, probably the healthier meals and, and, and the nicer things. And then when we came in, um, things were different. And I started to protest against that mm. um, very, very strongly um, um, and um, got a group of, of pupils at 11 and 12 years of age behind me to do it. Um, oh, that the first time on the picket line. Uh, that was my first time uh, to, do, to do something like that and I continued on to do things like that. Um, did you change it? Yes, I did. I did. Absolutely. Now, did Mother Superior want to change it? Not really, because she did She did um, uh, threaten to expel me on a number of occasions. I didn't get expelled because Petra was a really, really good pupil. Um, and Petra always stood up for me. So she was probably my advocate. Um, and they didn't want to expel me because Petra was so good. Um, but it actually changed. The Mother Superior at the time... Actually, when I look back, she had a sense of justice as well. Um, and I remember her bringing me in to her office, and I can still recall her office to this day because I visited more than I, that I should have. <laughs> um, and um, saying to me, you're a real problem for me. Um, but I remember looking at her across her big desk and thinking there's a real twinkle in her eye because mm-hmm. I think she agrees with me. Um, and she told me to stop it. But I remember us coming in then the following Monday morning and the two lines had stopped. Right. So um, how did now that she never feel? told me a win, but she didn't tell me that I had, I'd achieved it. Um, she said, you need to leave things like this with me. I remember her words and it stopped. Right. Um, what did was our the, next campaign? Oh, gosh. My next campaign after that was um, very simple things. Now, I'll <laughs> tell you my next campaign was... Um, at the beginning of the year, you got school books, okay? You got textbooks. And um, those that had money and could pay for them got new textbooks. 
because we had subsidised, um, we got the second-hand textbooks. And I remember queuing up in the wrong line um, for, for textbooks um, and going in and lifting the new textbooks and handing over, which I had no knowledge that this was um, a subsidised mm-hmm. ticket that I had. And the, the teacher that was running the book um, the books, um, giving out the books that day, said to me, no, those books aren't for you. Mm. And I started a campaign about that as well. Um, <laughs> and I did. And did and you win that one? Yes, I did. <laughs> Absolutely did. How old were you then? I was 12. <laughs> well, um, look, I didn't achieve it by being um, nasty. Mm. I remember going, it was the art teacher, and he was a really wonderful man, actually. And I remember coming out that day and maybe feeling a little bit humiliated and embarrassed because you were then stood at the back of the line to wait on the second hand. But I remember going up to his art room and knocking on his door and asking him, could I come in and speak to him? And sitting down and telling him how I felt. Mm. Um, And saying to him, I've got a number of signatures Mm. from from my my friends. Um, I'm sure I didn't have that many, (laughs) but I felt as if I had the world with me. And... um, and uh, asking him, would he not change this? Mm. And he did. Mm. He absolutely did. So have any of them been in contact with you now to say keep going? Because the teachers must think it's quite funny in some ways that you now, where, where you've ended up and what you're doing. Some of them keep in touch with me. Yes, some of them do and are very proud of, of I suppose, one of their pupils. Um, certainly none of the nuns keep in touch with mm. me. I'm sure yeah. there's very few of them living now. Mm. Mm. Um but some of the, the teachers are obviously well, are, are retired um, and um, look back on it and would, would contact me through social media. Mm. Um, and in fact, one teacher did contact me and said, I feel we let you down. Oh, really? Mm. Interesting. Because mm-hmm. you actually failed all your exams, didn't you? I did. I did. So what impact did that have on you? Did you feel a sense of failure or do you, do you think actually it's something you learnt from? Um, I probably approached my life at that school is not feeling belonging to the school. I really did not feel connected into that school at all. Um, and it was because of those few reasons that I've given and because of the hierarchy um, that the nuns operated, um, I always felt an outsider. Um, and because of that, I I probably... Um, that was maybe the rebellious side of me. I mm. didn't... I I didn't work um, at school um, at all. I was more focused on perhaps maybe um, the injustices that were going on in the school and thinking I could take on the system a bit rather than knuckling down. Mm-hmm. Um, that was always a big issue for my sister Petra and a big issue for my mother, of course, as well. But I did leave, I did leave, well, I at, at, at was then O-levels um, I got one, <laughs> which was religion, because I came from a very strong um, religious background um, and um, I knew my knew religion pretty well from home. So I passed it with just about um, and that was it. Um, and then, of course, I, I wasn't, um, I, I couldn't get back into do A-levels. And I remember that day distinctly when Mother Superior um, said, well, obviously, we, we won't be taking Pat back. And I remember feeling that was my first time I really felt I had let my family down, mm. let my mother down and, 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 and my sister Petra down. So then you became a nurse. So yeah. did they let you in with those qualifications? Well, that's an interesting one because then I left, I left the convent and went to our local secondary school in Carrickmore, um, which at that stage was um, anyone that didn't pass the 11 plus went to. 
Um, and I went there then to repeat because my mother said very clearly to me, you're not leaving school. So it doesn't matter what you're going to be doing. You're going to have to find a school to go to because you're going to have to get qualifications. And I went back and repeated um, uh, my, my, my fifth year there. And for the first time, I felt totally connected to a school. Um, and I asked myself, why, why was that? It's because um, the teachers in that school, it's, it's a cliche to say they treated us as equals, but they did see us as people. Mm. Um, and there was a connection in with, with those teachers that I never had in the grammar school in, in, in the convent. So I really felt um, very, very connected in and wanted to almost do well for, mm. for those teachers. Mm. So I left with, with a few more qualifications, not a lot. And I then completed an entrance exam to get into nursing. Okay. And why did you choose to specialise in mental health? Um, probably all along my life, I've been fascinated by people. Um and interested in personalities and I'm also a psychotherapist. So um, I, I really um, believe that if you can connect in with someone um, and understand their reasons and their rationale for doing something, then you'll get the best out of them. So um, I, I was at home in, in mental health nursing and with people that taught me everything about about the importance of human life, importance of human beings, but the importance of mental health and well-being. Um, and dealing with people, again, disadvantaged in society, left behind. And if you look at our big institutions and our big psychiatric hospitals, when I started nursing, there was hundreds and hundreds of people in those institutions and I felt they got a raw deal in life. Mm. Um, and what I was really it like felt going into those psychiatric hospitals at the beginning? Because you were very young. I was very young. Um, it's interesting, I never felt frightened. Never, ever felt frightened. Maybe that says something about my personality. Um, I always felt very comfortable, even with the most challenging of patients. And we had some very, very challenging patients that, that we would have been nursing at that point. Um, because even then, we wouldn't have had forensic units or medium secure units. All of those patients would have been in the hospitals that I worked in. Um, but I never felt frightened from them. Um, and I'll tell you why. Because even when patients were at their most aggressive, if you engaged with them and sat down and tried to understand their reasons for what we would have called at that stage acting out, um, it was fascinating how they engaged with you and the importance of human touch and um, just listening um, and understanding and coming to an agreement with each other. Um, I was always pretty good at that, I think, um, mm. and always got the best from from patients. But I also got learned so much from 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 those patients that I I nursed in large large institutions that were there for forty and fifty years. Some of them women who um, were were placed there simply because they had a child out of wedlock, and forty and fifty years later oh, were still goodness. in those hospitals. And I can still remember all of those patients yeah. to this day. And there was one particular hospital which had such a cruel policy that you had to start another campaign, wasn't? Didn't you? What was that? Gosh, I seem to have campaigned all my life, don't I? <laughs> um, um, I never went out looking for campaigns. Mm. They always seemed to just come to me, um, and then. I always felt I could never walk by them. Um, 
it was no different in this in this psychiatric hospital to any other one. And there was a what what they called a token economy policy in place, um, and that is where um, if a patient became aggressive or challenging, then something personal belonging to them was removed. And if you can imagine some of the people that I talked about that were there for 30 and 40 years, they had very few possessions, mm. very, very few possessions because we were in large Nightingale wards, beds packed close together, maybe 30 and 40 patients in a ward. So there was little space for anything. So some of them would have had um, perhaps maybe a teddy bear that they brought in 20 years ago mm. um, or a blanket or something really, really small. And then, of course, other things like cigarettes, mm. which were really important. There was a big culture of smoking. Um, and when 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 they had repeated um, challenging behaviour, those things were removed from them. And I find that so, so difficult, mm. really, that um, because that made them act out more and became more challenging mm. because they were so connected and with, with very small personal belongings. Um, and that was a regime that was put in place by the then consultant psychiatrist who was treated as the, the figurehead and the, the, almost the god um, in, in medicine and, and in, in psychiatry at that stage. It's changed now. Um, and I remember um, writing a letter then to the... the um, it's only 18. I probably have a look back on it now. I was taking my career in my hands. Um, to the then nursing officer, a Miss McKeown, who called them by their, by their title, Um and not telling the ward sister that I was doing it and saying how abhorrent this was and it needed to stop. Mm. Um, and um, a, I remember then the sister coming to me on that day, a couple of days later, and saying to me, um, student nurse McAleer, um, <laughs> come to my office. Um, what have you done? Um, how, did you write a letter to Miss McKeown? You didn't go through me and all. And I said, yes. And she asked me why, why I'd done it. Told her. I said, it needs to stop. This has to stop. Um, and she said, well, Miss McKeown's on her way down to see you. And, um, he, of course, uh, the, the consultant as well was involved. And, um, again, um, a very reasonable woman when, when an issue was put to her. But she had just went along with it as well because it was the dumb thing. But when actually I stood back and talked to her in the office that day about it and how it felt and how it felt for those patients because I was there after mm. their belongings had been removed. So I was able to tell her the real lived experience. I suppose a bit now what I'm saying about what I'm doing with the nurses. Mm. I've walked amongst those nurses. Mm. I can see what happens mm. to them when they don't have the resources, when they're poorly paid, mm. when they're not listened to. And I felt that was the, the same as what we were doing with our patients. Mm. And that got changed as well. Mm. Now, it didn't change overnight. Um, of course, the consultant psychiatrist at the time was a very formidable man and he changed it gradually. But by the time I left that ward... Two months later, it had completely dissipated. Is there any campaign that you haven't won? Um, gosh, no. <laughs> but you know what? Everyone that I've been involved in, it meant something to me very mm -hmm. personally. I never went out. Look, I'm not just someone that goes out looking for a campaign mm. um, and I want to become this campaigner in life. It's always something that I feel in my heart is the right thing to do. Um, and so when you look at ministers now as a psychotherapist, mm -hmm. what do you think, how would you analyse uh, what uh, Steve Barkley, the health secretary, and Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, are saying and doing? 
I, do, I don't think they're bad people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they've really tough jobs. Would I want to do their job? No, absolutely not. I think they've got a mammoth, mammoth task on their hands. And when I sit with, with Steve Barclay, I think sometimes I look at him and think, if I could if I could get into a room with you on my own, and we could just, or if you and I could just walk these wards together and speak to the people and that you see the reality of all of this, or come and do a night shift with me in a ward. Have you asked I, him? No, because he, he we, we, we can't engage on that level. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if we did... I think he would come out feeling different and doing things differently. Um, and I did say it yesterday, I think they're too far removed from reality. And when you when you remove yourself from reality and from the real issues that are happening, you don't make the right decisions. And what needs to happen now, do you think, to stop the strikes next time? There is a rhetoric out there that says this Royal College of Nursing is unrealistic. It's looking for something that's totally unachievable. It's looking for 19%. Now, I could I could sit here all day and tell you, will nurses' pay has dropped by 20% over the last decade? Do I believe those nurses are entitled? Absolutely, I believe they're entitled to 19%. But we also understand the economic climate that we're working in. What I would say to Steve Barclay and to the Prime Minister is get into a room and meet me halfway here. Do the decent thing for these nurses. Let's work together to see what, what the next next year next year is going to be like. But we need to sort out something for this year and to send a message out to the nursing staff of this country that have held us all together, that they're valued, they're absolutely valued, but that they can also pay their bills, that they don't have to be reduced to going to food banks. And it is a reality. I've seen those food banks. I've walked with them mm. to them. So... They need to do something mm. to 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 get into a room with me and sit down and and as I say, meet me halfway. So are you willing to accept nine and a half percent? Let's discuss it, is what I would say. Let's get in and set out our stalls. There's a whole list of priorities I have got um, that will change the lives of the profession and the nurses that we need to hold on to. Because the answers to the NHS lie with those frontline nurses and doctors and other healthcare workers. If they really went down and looked to those people, they have got many answers that will change things for those politicians. So we could get into a room and talk about it. For example, safe nurse staffing legislation. That's one of the areas we really, really need to push forward so that the responsibility and accountability for ensuring we've got the right workforce to look after our patients sits at the doors of Westminster and not with the band five and six nurses at the front line who are battling every day. Those are the sorts of areas we want to talk to him about. But we haven't had an opportunity to do that because it seems to be that very quickly we lock horns about the pay review process. And this pay review process now has become more important to uh, government than sorting out the, the crisis within the health service. Mm. And your childhood's obviously made you incredibly resilient, but looking back to yourself at 13 when your father died and then at 18 when your mother died, what do you wish that you'd known then that you now know? That that you can survive, that you can go on, that that loss can make you stronger. I suppose that's what I've, I've, I've really learned. Um, and I've also learned to stand on my own two feet. And 
not depend on anyone else um, in many respects is, is probably what I would say and always be um, to always be self-sufficient and to work hard I've always had a work ethic um, and it also probably made me feel much stronger about family and family ties and keeping keeping contact with family and the importance of family always speaking truth to you. Pat Cullen, thank you very much for talking to us on Past Imperfect. Thank you. You've been listening to Past Imperfect in association with the youth social mobility charity Speakers for Schools with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, the nurses leader, Pat Cullen. The producer was Lucy Ditchmont. If you enjoyed this episode of Past Imperfect, please do go to the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts and you can download our interviews with guests including Keir Starmer, Dr Henry Marsh and Angela Rayner. You can also buy a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website, where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.